Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel Dory. And I'm Ian Tullock. How are you doing today, Rachel? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. The first round of the playoffs, especially after like, you know, three or four games is when things start to get really kind of stressful and fun and crazy and ridiculous. You look at what's happening with Tampa Bay. You look at what's happening with Pittsburgh. You look at the ridiculous back and forthness of the Toronto Boston series. And it's just it's a good time to be a hockey fan. I'm enjoying everything. Yeah. And I think like the Golden Knight Shark series is probably one of the most entertaining series. But because it's at 1030 every night, barely anyone sees it. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but it's a good time. Everyone's big into their uh, their playoff emotions right now. Hockey Twitter's a bit of a dumpster fire, but I kind of love it. I kind of love the craziness of everything, but we're going to be a bit more uh, calm and rational today. At least I like to think we will. Yeah, the hockey Twitter on Saturday night will be the exact opposite of what this podcast will be today. That's the goal, at least. We'll see if we can accomplish it. So so what's the, the topic du jour today? What are we going to be breaking down? I think it's kind of really topical to break down the adjustments that are being made by teams and how kind of cross-sport tactics apply and in particular Greg Popovich who's arguably the greatest sports coach in the North American sports landscape right now. Basically him and Bill Belichick I think over the last 20 years right? Yeah I mean I think when you have that level of consistency and stability whether it's Bill Belichick or Greg Popovich and you can consistently get the best from your players it's pretty hard to argue that level of success. Yeah, so I know that there was a, an athletic piece on Greg Popovich recently that you wanted to break down, and then I've got some points I wanted to make about it. But for anyone who doesn't know, Greg Popovich is the coach of the San Antonio Spurs, who I can't remember the last time they missed the playoffs, but, but they seem to always win 50 games every season. It's just remarkable consistency, even after some of their players age out, and even when Tim Duncan retired, they continued to have some solid success. So I'll let you just take it from there and give people a, a breakdown of some of the cool things he does to get the most out of his team. So essentially, the article that was on The Athletic goes into how Popovich sort of runs his organization. And I'll just kind of give you a few quotes that I picked out and that a couple other people that I was discussing this article picked out. And it just kind of gives insight into how Popovich does things. So a team might scout the Spurs for weeks, trying to anticipate their plays and what they're good at executing. But they're probably not going to be ready for who or what Popovich is going to throw at them. And that's one of the things that makes them so predictable. Because there there are play sets within the system that Popovich will conceal for a month or two months. And then all of a sudden he'll use them again right at the right time. So as soon as coaches think that the Spurs aren't going to run a particular play set, here it comes. And that's how he catches opponents off guard. And oftentimes teams just aren't prepared for it. Um, and then... For the other 82, so for the 82 game schedule, he basically uses it as a laboratory that prepares the good teams for the postseason. So this applies essentially to coaches going up against Popovich in a seven game series because they what they do is they try different things in the regular season that might not be optimal or seen as optimal and that fans might scream about. But what they're doing is they're collecting data on different things so that when the playoffs come, if they need to adjust what they're doing, they have an abundance of different options that they have data on so they know what works and what doesn't. And I think the hockey equivalent might be, well, you're trying this defense pairing that doesn't seem like it's ideal, especially if you're going up against a, an up-and-down team that's just going to skate them into oblivion and they won't be able to keep up, but maybe against a slower cycling team, they're good at breaking up the cycle in defensive zone, getting the puck to their forwards, and all of a sudden that might be a good matchup in that particular matchup, but it might not work in other situations. And I feel like with Greg Popovich... This is something he's done for a while. Is he, he's tried a bunch of different starting rotations. Think back to when Tim Duncan was on the team back when they were winning championships about five or six years ago. There were nights where Tim Duncan would take the night off. There were nights where T- Tony Parker would take the night off or Manu Ginobili would take the night off. So they'd have a, a lot of different starting rotations that they go to and they'd have some really uh, unique looks that they go to. Even late in games when it was winning time, the last five minutes of a close game, 
they'd have different combinations that they go to against different opponents just really to test out to see what worked and what didn't. And like you said, if you never try something out, you're never going to see if it works or not. And then if you do it for a decent sample of games, you have a you have a half decent sample size there to know whether or not something's effective. And I feel like knowing what works and what doesn't helps you, especially in a seven game series, because let's say that your go to your plan A doesn't work. Okay, you have a plan B, a plan C, a plan D. You have a lot of contingency plans that you know might have some effectiveness based on your ability to run them in the regular season. And I feel like it's Really cool seeing him do this, but I think we have to point out that he has the luxury of doing it because he's had such a great team for a long time and that when you know you're going to make the playoffs and you know that the regular season doesn't really matter, you can try different things the regular season. You can use it as a laboratory to, to see what's going to work for you in the playoffs. In the NHL, I feel like there's a lot more parity and for teams who are on the bubble especially, you probably don't have the, the privilege to try those things out. But if you're a team like, let's say, Tampa Bay or Boston or... Even Toronto, Calgary. If you knew you were going to make the playoffs a long time, like in about January or February, you've got a few months there where you can test out some different things to see what's going to work for you and what isn't going to work for you. And not to say that Mike Babcock's done this a lot, but for example, the Nikita Zaitsev and uh, Jake Muzzin pairing isn't one that off the top of your head you'd think would work. But for whatever reason, that's been the best pairing that Zaitsev's ever played on. And it's allowed the other two pairings to do well for Toronto. They've run Muzzin and Zaitsev in a matchup pairing against the Bergeron line. And knock on wood as a Leafs fan, but it's worked really well in games one and three. So that's something that you wouldn't have got to test out if you were running the same lines the entire season, all 82 games. And I really like the way that Greg Popovich has that philosophy of let's use the regular season as a testing ground to see what's going to work for us in the playoffs. And I feel like it's something we could see a lot more often in hockey because I feel like a lot of the times we just tend to see coaches running the same lines or when they mix things up, sometimes fans go, oh, here comes the lineup blender again. But at the end of the day, it might be a really good idea to test out different scenarios and get a, a decent sample size of data to know what works and what doesn't. Well, in the perfect example, there are two right now. San Jose is going to have to play a game without Joe Thornton, and Toronto has to play without Nazem Kadri. I guarantee you that had both the Leafs and the Sharks employed some type of Greg Popovich mentality, they probably would have had more data and been prepared as to what combos, who can play where, as opposed to somewhat having to take an educated guess at what the lineup should look like. And the reason that Popovich can do this in terms of accounting for injuries and suspensions is because in the playoffs he tries or in the regular season he tries things that don't seem to be optimal but when push comes to shove in the playoffs if he loses a player he knows okay I don't have that player this is the data I have this is what I know works so he can immediately go to a completely different playset that the team is probably not prepared for and that's where I think he's at his best because his preparation and his ability to adjust to different situations because he has that plethora of data because he's tried so many things is second to none it's bare it's basically unmatched I think the hockey equivalent would be trying different things maybe against a team who really likes to trap things up maybe a certain line or a certain group of players will work better against that style than they would against a team with a really aggressive forecheck in the offensive zone or a team who is a bit more passive without the puck and tends to prefer playing more up and down style of hockey I feel like you have to try different things against different play styles to see what works and what doesn't so for example in the NBA you might have a team that loves running all five shooters on the floor at the same time and that, that's what we call having a stretch five, a, a center who can shoot. On a team like uh, Boston with an Al Horford, that's a great example. Or a team like Milwaukee, you have Brooke Lopez who can fire three-pointers. A certain style will work against a team with a stretch five a lot better than it'll work against a team who might be running a non-shooter on the floor along with those players. So you have to try different things against different lineups to know what's going to work and what isn't going to work. And it's funny because some players who, in the aggregate, are ineffective players might be very effective against a particular type of player. And I feel like that's something that we don't really think about because, for example, uh, I'll go back to the NBA. If you have a player like, I'm just going to pick someone for fun. I'm going to go back 10 years. Dwight Howard, who is just a completely dominant post player. 
and you don't have anyone who can defend him one-on-one, it's really going to hurt your overall team defense. But if you have a player who can take him one-on-one, 10 years ago, that was Kendrick Perkins for the Boston Celtics, all of a sudden, you could just stay with him one-on-one, cover all the shooters on the perimeter, and they wouldn't be getting that open space. So even though Kendrick Perkins was a bit of a liability in pick-and-roll defense, you couldn't play him against every single lineup, against that particular player, he was extremely effective. And in the NHL, I'm sure that exists where there are players who, on the aggregate, their expected goals are negative when they're on the ice. You know, their shot attempts, they have a negative impact on possession. But against a particular type of player, maybe uh, against a particular style of play, they're significantly more effective. And I feel like that's something that's hard to take into account analytically, but you can kind of see it when you break down the video. So in hockey, I think that coaches are more apt to, to stick with things. And... You see fans yelling, why don't they try something new? Or when the coach does fire things in the blender, you go, oh my god, Like, why isn't he just sticking with what's working? But in reality, if you just keep the same lineups, the same line combinations, the same plays, you become extremely easy to scout and you're very predictable. Whereas with Popovich, he's got so many different play sets and so many different combinations, it's very difficult to deal with. So I think in hockey... I think we need to take a step back potentially and say, okay, if a coach is trying something, it's potentially to gather data so that later down the line, he has something to pull from where he knows what works. So perfect example is Columbus. Tampa played the same way all year. They were run and gun through the neutral zone. If they got speed through the neutral zone and they got the zone with a rush chance, it's very difficult to stop them. Columbus knew they had the ability to stop Tampa in the neutral zone because they had tried their neutral zone sort of tactic with other teams. So they knew it had worked against other teams who played a similar style to Tampa. And then when you unleash it on Tampa, Tampa was completely unprepared. See, this is what confuses me a lot. How did no other team think, oh, okay, let's let's just take away the neutral zone from Tampa Bay? I feel like that's been a strategy that other teams have tried, but yet for some reason... Tampa Bay is really struggling in the series. And this isn't just an example of a hot goalie completely stealing the series where Tampa Bay has been completely dominant, much like Washington was against Montreal, let's say, 10 years ago when they got halacked. That isn't happening. Like, Tampa Bay is getting outplayed in these games, especially when you adjust for score effects. So what's happening there? Because as a fan of hockey, I don't get it just because the Tampa Bay Lightning were so dominant through 82 games, maybe the best team we've seen in the salary cap era. I mean, I think definitely, probably the best team we've seen in the last 20, 25 years. But they've been getting outplayed in these games, and it's confusing. I don't understand it. I think one of the biggest things that I've seen is Tampa's not playing like Tampa. So for whatever reason, when the playoffs started, they played well for a period, maybe two, and then Columbus just kind of came out. John Tortorella made the adjustments that he needed to make. He pushed the buttons because he likely had tried things. The thing about Tampa is they were so good all year, they didn't have to try anything else. Their lines stayed relatively the same. Their play sets stayed relatively the same. And because they just had higher skill players, you can't... No one had an answer. But now... I mean, we'll get into this later. Uh, the game's officiated differently. It's played differently in the playoffs. I mean, I ad nauseum have heard that over the past four days. And so you're allowed to do things to potentially slow up a faster team that you just would not be allowed to do in the regular season. And because Tampa only played that way the whole year, they don't have an adjustment to go to because they only know how to play that one way. So I think Columbus really throwing a wrench really clogging up the neutral zone. It's not like the New Jersey Devils, Minnesota Wild trap, but it's about as effective in terms of they're using their own speed to counteract Tampa. They're catching Tampa early so that Tampa can't even come into the neutral zone with speed, never mind go into the offensive zone with speed. And that's become a big problem for Tampa's skilled players because they just don't play at lower speeds. Like, they just, they don't play that way. So, in order to get through Columbus, they're having to adjust. And I'm interested to see now, down 3 nothing, what type of adjustments Cooper makes. So, for teams like Tampa Bay, who, like you said, had tons of time to try different things the regular season and maybe see if they could play a different style just for fun in case they had to adapt in the playoffs, 
I completely understand that. But I think the devil's advocate here is what about a team like Carolina or a team like, let's say, Colorado, who is fighting for their playoff lives basically all season and never really had the luxury of, oh, let's let's test something out here. And if it doesn't work, that's okay because, you know, the regular season doesn't matter. For those teams, the regular season is everything because whether or not they make the eight seed or they make the seven seed, it comes down to whether or not the coach gets fired or, or, or whether or not the GM is going to get fired. So there's a lot of pressure on them to get the most out of their team in every single regular season game. So I feel like it's harder for a Carolina or it's harder for a Colorado to say, yeah, let's shake things up. Let's put McKinnon on a different line because, well, no, we know this works and we need to get the most out of McKinnon for a team to make the playoffs. So He's playing with Rantanen and he's playing with Landis Cog, and we're going to keep it that way for 82 games because we know that works. Or Carolina going, yeah, we're going to keep Jacob Slavin and Dougie Hamilton together because we know that works and uh, we need to try our best to make the playoffs. I find it difficult to shake things up in those situations because you kind of have to treat every regular season game like a playoff game because for your franchise, it basically is. You see, and with hockey, there's such parity that a lot of games come down to a bounce or one missed play. So when the games are that close, whereas in basketball, I mean, you see the betting lines. The Warriors are basically minus 1,000 every game. Like, it's insane. Whereas in hockey, if a team's minus 200, it's basically Tampa playing the lowest team in the league kind of thing. So I think there with hockey, there's so much parity because the discrepancy between players is so much smaller than in basketball that you can you can actually afford to try different things to see what works because the discrepancy between players is not as big as it is in the NBA and it's definitely not as pronounced because you don't have a guy out there playing 95% of the game or 80% of the game. In hockey, at most, you have a guy playing 50 and that's your number one defenseman. But more than likely, you have guys playing 25, 27% of the game. So there's a lot of options that you can go to. And I, I think there's actually an argument to be made that because there's such parity, why not try things? What if you find something else that works? Then you have options. So if a team has an answer for your McKinnon, Landis, Grant in line, well, now we can go to a different combination that we know also works. So it's about having the answers because as you get into the season later on, the games become more important. And if you're not prepared and you don't have extra data well, if a team all of a sudden has an answer for you and it's a do-or-die game, how are you going to respond, right? You can't, at that point, hope, right? That's When you start depending on hope, that's probably not a good idea. I feel like that's what the NHL playoffs are at the end of the day. <laughs> I mean, yeah, honestly. But even, like, look at Boston. Bruce Cassidy came out before game one and said, we're going to go with a speed team. Well, that immediately played into Toronto's hands because Toronto's a faster team than Boston. They play faster. Tampa plays the fastest in the NHL. They move the puck fast. They skate fast. Everything they do is fast. But Boston had the ability to say, we want to play a speed game because throughout the season, I had watched many Boston games where Boston had played the Boston style, which came out in game two, and they'd also tried the speed style. So when they'd play the speed style, Bacchus was not playing as much and when they played the heavy Boston style Bacchus was playing so Cassidy knew he had two options and so he had to know what worked and what didn't and I think Boston actually did a very good job in game three of kind of finding the medium between those two and lo and behold it ended up a 3-2 game and it was the best game of the series. Yeah, it's interesting. Another factor was that in game one, he matched up the Bergeron line to the Tavares line, to the Tavares-Marner line. So both coaches got what they wanted in that game. Babcock wanted Tavares-Marner against Bergeron, and Cassidy wanted Bergeron against Tavares-Marner, and they both got what they want. After game one, I think Cassidy realized, crap, okay, I don't think I want this anymore. And he got the Bergeron line out against the Austin Matthews line in game two. He interestingly put... Uh, Wagner and Achari and uh, who else against the the Tavares line in game two? Nordstrom. Yeah, and that uh, that sounds like a terrible idea, but it worked incredibly well. So now it's interesting to see, okay, crap, now the coaches want different things. Now Babcock wants Tavares against Boston's top line, whereas now Bruce Cassidy wants that Bergeron line out against Matthews and company, and he feels like he can use other lines to help shut down the Tavares line. It's very interesting to see how... Coaches might want the same thing early in a series, but then change their minds based on how the results happen on the ice. Exactly, and they know sort of because of 
what they've done. So if you notice, towards the end of the season, Babcock started giving the matchup that he would usually give the Tavares line to Matthews. I think against Florida was the perfect example. Instead of Tavares going up against the Barkoff line, he made Matthews, and he hard-matched Matthews against Barkoff because he wanted to see how the Matthews line would do against the top line. And it was probably because he knew that come time for the playoffs, teams were probably going to try Matthews against their top line because obviously Tavares is a little bit more of a veteran defensively sound player. Much more so than Matthews, who doesn't get enough flack for how poor he's been defensively throughout his career. Yeah, I think. And so what happened there was Babcock was trying Matthews because he needed to see if Matthews had improved or if Matthews could handle it. And I don't think in all fairness, that Game 2 was a very good representative of who was good and who wasn't. Neither was Game 1, to be fair. I think both games were kind of lopsided. Yeah, but at least the game... Like, Game 2 was basically WWE. And the perfect example I can think of is the Sharks-Golden Knights. It's a feisty, mean series. The same with Winnipeg-St. Louis. It's a feisty, mean, physical series. I mean, you look at those four teams. They're big. They all can relatively skate, but... I mean, I don't want to go into a corner with any of those players, but the game is still being called to a certain standard that it hasn't evolved into WWE. You know what I'm saying? So those four teams play their style, which is very similar actually to the Boston style, except they're towing a different line because it's being officiated to a different... There are different things that are called. Okay, so we'll let... A little bit go like we'll let you play a little bit harder you could probably finish your check maybe a half second later but we're not gonna let you stick your knee out we're not gonna let you sucker punch guys like none of that has happened you know what I mean so it's anything that's actually happened the referees have been very good at nipping right away so that it doesn't devolve into chaos So this is a nice transition to what we wanted to talk about. We kind of want to do two main topics today. One, the Greg Popovich regular season adjustments that you can use to help you in the playoffs. And then topic number two is going to be playoff officiating, which is everyone's favorite topic. It's funny, whenever I write an article or do my report cards, I try so hard to not talk about officiating. Because I feel like whenever you talk about officiating, whether it's in a particular game or a particular series, it comes across as really whiny, you know, and it yes. comes across as, oh, my team lost this game because of the officiating. And I never want it to be about that because, no. I mean, it can be completely independent. For example, I thought the Leafs got their teeth kicked in in game two, and I feel like that would have happened whether or not there was good officiating or bad officiating. Agreed. The Leafs didn't show up. It was one of the worst first periods I've ever seen played. Oh, it was awful. It was totally awful. And the fact that the game was poorly officiated, yeah, I mean, that, that was another factor that made a lot of people upset, but I thought they were honestly independent of one another. And then you look at look at what happened last night in Calgary, Colorado. So that series, even though it's a late series, has arguably been one of the best. Um, we can touch on Nathan McKinnon. That's like another podcast topic in itself, just how great he is. But, but <laughs> look how many power plays there are in both the Avs-Flame series, and in the Golden Knights-Shark series, there's barely been any even strength play. It's all special teams. I remember there was a Vegas-San Jose game where like it went down to three-on-three at one point because of how many penalties were being called. I'm like, I didn't even see that in a regular season, never mind in the playoffs. But then you look at it, and when you are trying to contain somebody of Nathan McKinnon's skill, and the way he skates, it's basically like a football running back. Like Once he gets going downhill... You just, you're taking a penalty or he has to screw up. It's like Adrian Peterson in his prime. Like he's going full speed and like he's so strong. Like, I don't know what you're going to do. You have to take a penalty. And at that point, you've got to call it because it's so blatant that it affects the play. Right? So there's, I think that if they just call the rule book and as someone who is an official, like I am an official and um, it's funny, one of somebody that I'm close with, happens to be a Bruins fan, but is also a junior hockey official. And I used to referee uh, kids hockey as well. So like, I I know all about what it's like trying to set a penalty standard too. Exactly. So even he was saying that for the most part, the officiating in this playoffs has been different because every year we have this discussion that murder is basically legal in the playoffs, especially at the net front. But he was saying that he's noticed that this year, um, it's not like that. He's noticing 
that the officials in the first period are doing a very good job, with the exception of Game 2 in Boston, setting the tone for what is and is not allowed. So if you want a battle at the net front, that's allowed. And you know what? In the playoffs, I'm okay with a battle at the net front. But when you're talking about, and he said this, when you're talking about impacting possession of the puck, so interference, you've got to call that. Whether it's the playoffs or not, you have to call the interference. Or a hook that takes away a scoring chance, you know? Yes, like he said, the Marner penalty shot was a perfect example. You had no choice. He, The player used his stick to push Marner's skate out from under him, which is very dangerous to begin with, and it was a breakaway. And the fact that Boston was on the power play... He had to call. He had to make that call. There was no choice there. But in terms of San Jose and Vegas, I mean, there have been fights. Evander Kane and Ryan Reeves fought. It's a very physical series. The, the inner caveman in me kind of loves that. Yeah, oh, I, I love that fight because it was a legitimately passionate fight. But they're still calling to a standard, right? And I think that if the officials do a good job of setting the tone and sending the message that, hey... We will allow more physical play, but we're not going to allow you to interfere or to blatantly break the rules. Like, you're not going to cross-check a guy in the head and get away with it. I think if as long as you set the tone as... As long as you don't affect puck possession, we'll allow you to battle at the net front. We'll allow the cross-check at the net front. But we're not going to allow you to hold guys or water ski on guys. And that's sort of the thing is not only that but the players also change the way they play like have you noticed that even players that wouldn't normally be physical or or more physical in the playoffs you're seeing Connor Brown try to lay people out you're seeing Trevor Moore hitting Zidane Chara. it's awesome I love it but uh I definitely understand what you mean David Pasternak laying guys out David Pasternak's a wrecking ball (laughs) it's it's awesome I love it and it's funny because Like you said, if it impacts possession, it feels like they're making the call. But if it's, let's say, a late hit. Like, for example, the hit comes a half second later than it would come in the regular season. In the regular season, they're probably calling that interference. But in the playoffs, they're letting it go. You know, after Jake DeBrus makes a pass, if Nazem Kadri hits him to the boards, they're not calling it. If you're finishing your check on the forecheck a solid second after the guys let go of the puck... The refs are letting it go. Yeah, Winnipeg-St. Louis is a perfect example. I mean, there is a second, a second and a half between hits and puck release, and they're letting it go because, I mean, the puck's already gone. But once you start doing the stuff that impacts puck possession, that's when they've, they've really started to crack down. Or like if Mark Stone's making a deke and you tap him on the wrists as he's trying to make a move on the goalie and it impacts his ability to beat the goalie, the referees are calling it every time. And it's funny because I think there are some fans who are a bit frustrated with that because it's like, oh, that was a light tap on the wrists. How can you call that? But if it impacts the possession and it impacts your ability to get to the net, I definitely understand it. The counter argument is that would you be worried about this getting to the point where it's almost like basketball, where like with James Harden, yeah, it impacted the shot, so you have to call it. You know, oh, it impacted his ability to get to the lane, you have to call it. But then it becomes a bit less fun to watch and you want to see a bit more flow of the game as opposed to ticky-tacky calls. So for me, I think if you call it the way that they're calling it in Avs Flames or you call it the way they're calling it in Jets Blues, it's good. Because the more you let it devolve into what players can and can't get away with, the harder the game gets and the more players get hurt. Which is why we see players playing with broken noses and broken ribs and whatever else, I mean, the less... Punctured lungs, yeah, Patrice Bergeron. Yeah, the less the players get hurt, the better, because I don't know about you, but the quality of hockey is probably better when the guys aren't playing hurt. So I would like to watch a better quality of hockey than a bunch of guys playing hurt because people are running around laying hits left, right, and center, and there's dirty cross-checks here that are breaking guys' ribs. Like, I'm okay with allowing you to finish the check what I'm not okay with is losing control of the game to a point where guys are getting hurt or guys are seeking vigilante justice like it's it's not consistent and it should be I mean would you consider what Evander Kane did vigilante justice or is that more of a feud like how how do you how do you decide between what what those two are I think that as the referee it's your job to take the temperature of the game and 
all three games, the the refs would have been brief that there's a feud going on between those two. And as long as it stays within the realm of not dangerous, let it happen. So Evander Kane, Ryan Reeves, let it happen. But Jake DeBrusque, Nazem Kadri in game two, you got to call some Well, stuff. here's the thing is that Evander Kane and Ryan Reeves, they were just laying hits on each other and they were chirping back and forth. Jake DeBrusque and Nazem Kadri, Jake DeBrusque stuck his knee out. Uh, did a couple other... He cut Jake Muzzin open. And what Nazem Kadri did was completely uncalled Travis Dermott is who he cut open. Oh, Travis Dermott, sorry. But and Nazem Kadri was throwing some late hits too, I mean... There's a difference, right? If players are just laying hits and they're not high hits, they're just maybe late or they're chirping at each other or they're slashing each other's sticks like away from the play, I don't really have a problem with that. It's when a guy comes out and sticks his knee out or when a guy lays an elbow to the face of another guy like Dougie Hamilton, he absolutely chicken-winged one of the Caps players, and I have no idea how that wasn't a hearing. Or Joe Thornton should have been given a five-minute major for what he did to Noshek. I mean, that that was really dangerous. Probably should have got more than one game, too, realistically. I think that that's, and this will get into the inconsistency of supplementary discipline. What Kucherov did... I mean, when you consider, and now that I can say this, uh, he's got a history of doing this stuff. He concussed Vatnin last year in the playoffs, and there was nary a hearing for it, even though you could see the fact that his elbow went directly into Vatnin's head. So it's not like Kucherov is on the up and up for being a clean player. So the fact that this is the second playoffs in a row where there's been a questionable hit, but he's only received one hearing... That's probably why he laid the hit, because he knows he got away with it last year. In the same way that Dougie Hamilton chicken wings a guy, and it was a dirty hit. And Joe Thornton, who has a clean suspension record, and that's probably why he got the benefit of the doubt there. Like, I think any other player, that's probably two or three games. But because Joe Thornton's a 20-year vet, you probably get the benefit of the doubt. Plus, he doesn't have a history of doing that kind of stuff, typically. He is not a dirty player, whereas Kucherov has... There's some borderline things in the same way that with Brad Marchand, there's some borderline things that occur. Whereas with Nazem Kadri, they're not borderline. Oh, no. He's been suspended multiple times for dangerous hits and he knows better. Exactly. Whereas, so I think that there needs to be like a level of consistency. So you can't, you shouldn't just pick one player and make an example. Did Nazem Kadri deserve what he got? A hundred percent. Absolutely. I was going to say, at some point, I'm worried about us sounding like we're saying, oh my God, like you need to call something on Jake DeBrus because that's why Nazem Kadri did what no, he did. And completely... the inconsistency and officiating, this isn't fair and he shouldn't have been suspended. No, Nazem Kadri's an idiot. And what he did was selfish and stupid. And he deserved the rest of the series. I know people are upset that it was, it should have been three games or five games, be consistent, NHL. But I don't know. I don't know how you can really look at that and say that it was an unfair punishment. What Nazem Kadri did was dumb. He shouldn't have done it, and he's out for the rest of the series, and that sounds fair to me. I mean... Oh, no, he deserved it. (laughs) But what I'm saying, and this is what I was seeing a lot of, is what Nazem Kadri did now excuses what Dougie Hamilton, Jake DeBrusque, and Sam Bennett... Sam Gerrard has a concussion, I believe. Like, he hit him with a high hit. Totally illegal. It So what Kadri did is completely exclusive of what Thornton, Bennett, DeBrusque, Kucherov, and Hamilton did. And whatever Tom Wilson's about to do by the time this comes out. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And so you can't just say, okay, all of these things happened in one night. We're only going to have a hearing for the really bad thing that happened. Because then what happens is all the players that didn't get a hearing go, oh, I can get away with that. And in DeBrusque and Bennett's case, there wasn't even a penalty. And I don't even think there was a penalty in Hamilton's case either. Furlan got thrown out, and uh, I get why he was thrown out. I don't necessarily agree with it, and that's probably why he wasn't suspended. But I think that you can't just pick one incident kind of thing. You've got to... If there are four bad incidences, sorry, Department of Player Safety, but you're having four hearings. Like, and that's how it should be, is you got to put it across the board. And if one guy gets five games in the way that Kadri did, essentially, and Thornton gets one, and let's say Hamilton gets one, and Bennett gets two, then so be it, you have to make those decisions. My thing is, you shouldn't be picking one player, and only one player. If you're going to penalize across the board, then you need to penalize consistently and across the board. 
I feel like we have this discussion every time Tom Wilson throws another cheap shot or Brad Marshall licks someone <laughs> or Duncan Keith decides to slash uh, someone, someone in, the in the face with his stick again. I just, when it comes to player safety, I feel like it's so inconsistent. It's really frustrating. And I feel like the only time I actually somewhat liked what the NHL was doing with disciplinary stuff was when Brendan Shanahan came in and tr- started trying to actually get some consistency and get some actual punishments in there and using the video to help make it a bit more transparent as to why the decisions were being made. But ever since they kind of moved on from him, I haven't really liked what the NHL player safety's done. And now with George Peros there, it just, I don't know. I It, it feels wildly inconsistent and if anything, very uh, lenient to most players at, at most times. It's frustrating. So here's an idea and I kind of threw it out on Twitter, um, but I'm wondering kind of what you think. In the same way that the NBA does the last two-minute report, which is essentially what should and should not have been called, and essentially what the officiating got right and wrong in the last two minutes, do you think it's a good idea that Department of Player Safety, if there's a questionable hit that is very clearly questionable, that there should be, let's say there's not a hearing, that there should be some type of communication in the way that the war room communicates why it was or was not a goal as to why there is or is not a hearing? Do you think that would benefit fans? Because I know for myself, I'm certainly wondering why Bennett and Hamilton did not get hearings. Yeah, no, I, I think and the more transparency, the better. And as much as fans get frustrated with the NHL right now, the fact that they do at least release videos to this day with suspensions, at least you get an idea as to why they made the decision they do. You don't have to agree with it, but the transparency helps as opposed to just putting out a number randomly, which is what it feels like they do anyways. But at least there's a bit of explanation to it. So if you're not suspending, let's say, Dougie Hamilton, or you're not suspending, I don't know, you want you want to show the distinction between the Jake Muzzin hit on Tory Krug versus the Joe Thornton hit, and you're saying why one player got suspended, the other didn't. It would be nice to know the bullet points and the specific aspects of the hit that were clean versus what wasn't clean. And I feel like... The more information you can give people, the better. I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of just transparency and always being open with why you're making what decisions you're making, at least at the NHL level. Well, and not even just that. What if you are a player on a team that's playing and you see that those players aren't suspended, but then you see Thornton getting suspended or another questionable hit that does get suspended? As a player, you're kind of like, okay, uh, what am I allowed to do? Where's the line? Where is the line? And that's, that is sort of where you invite trouble. Because, I mean, if you just suspended everyone that deserved to probably be suspended, or you at least gave them a hearing, which is essentially a warning, that's basically what it is, then you, relatively speaking, eliminate the nonsense. Because then guys know where the line is. Just like when the NHL warned Brad Marchand not to lick anyone, and then he didn't lick anyone in the future. Yep. Totally yeah, agree. or biting. I'm messing with you. That totally happened, like, the next game. <laughs> <laughs> but even, I'm saying, like, warning-wise, okay, let's say you have a hearing. Let's say Dougie Hamilton has a hearing. He has no prior history of anything. The guy is the complete opposite of a dirty player. I mean, if you ask a bunch of people in hockey, they hate the way he plays because he's too soft. I happen to disagree, but that's a conversation for another day. He's now chicken-winged a guy in the head and not received a hearing. So if you're Dougie Hamilton, are you going to continue to do that? Because I might. If you think you can get away with it, I mean, that's the hard part. And that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. Like, you just want to see some consistency with this type of stuff. Because let's say he does it again, right? Or Sam Bennett does it again. I highly doubt that Joe Thornton is going to do it again. But let's say Dougie Hamilton does it again, and now he gets a hearing and a suspension. Well, if I'm Carolina, I'm going in there with the video of, of Washington and going, hey, wait a minute, he didn't get a penalty or a hearing for this, so why is this now a suspension? Because they're the same hit, right? And then will the NHL say, well, maybe we should have suspended him? Okay, well, you didn't. So are we suspending these hits or not? Yep, and it's funny when it comes to both the I, I don't know what you call that, the off-ice officiating when it comes to whether or not you determine that something's a suspension, or the on-ice officiating when you determine whether or not something's a penalty. I feel like what a lot of NHL fans want is a physical brand of hockey that doesn't deteriorate into a bunch of penalties. So how do you draw that balance? How do you get that fun NHL, you know, 
hit him hard in the corners, kind of physical playoff brand that gets everybody excited in the crowd. But how do you make sure that you're not at, you know, four on four or four on three or three on three for a lot of the game? Because five and five hockey, when it's physical and when it's fast and when it's in the playoffs, is for my money the, the best sport to watch. That's what I want to see as a fan. How do you make sure you get that from an officiating perspective? I think it's all about setting the tone. For me as an official, and I was obviously with my friend who's in junior, and I mean, I've been to some of the games. Some of the junior C games in Canada are, it's literally like insane. There's a bunch of crazy people running around on the ice. So trying to set the tone, I think that's key. Where you can say, all right, gentlemen, like this is the standard. If you want to battle in front of the net, we're going to let you battle in front of the net. You want to finish your checks, we're going to let you finish the check. If you finish the check high or there's hands to the face, if you elbow a guy, if there's if you stick your leg out or if there's interference, we're going to call it. You know what I mean? So We'll let you finish your check, but if you finish it high, or you elbow a guy, or you jump into a guy in the way that Pasternak did, we're not going to allow it. But if you're going to do what Kane and Reeves did, where you're just finishing checks and there's maybe you're slashing each other, going up the ice away from the play, we're going to let it happen and we'll let you guys fight it out. But once you start seeing the clipping and the kneeing and the elbowing and the charging, that's when you really got to go, all right, enough and you start calling it to rein them in, or you just set the tone at the beginning. The first high hit you see, box. So basically, if it's away from the puck, your penalty standard is like super high in that like you need to do a lot away from the puck to earn a penalty. Yes. But if it's near the puck and you impact the possession, you impact someone's ability to get a scoring chance, you have to call it every time because otherwise it's going to deteriorate into chaos. Yes, and I think... So if you're, they're slashing away from the play, I mean, I usually let that go. Like on line changes when there's like a bit of like, you know, jawing and face washing before you go off the ice. Yeah, like I could deal with that. That I'm okay with. When you start taking a baseball swing, well then you've got to call that. But I think where it mostly devolves into garbage is the high hits or the legs being stuck out, the elbows coming up. That's the dirty stuff, right? Because... A slash on the shin pads is really not that bad. I mean, if you're blocking a 100-mile-an-hour shot with your shin pads, I think you could take a whack. Yeah, you just don't want to get it on the wrist. That's the area it really hurts. Right. Now, when you are throwing your elbow up and cutting a guy open... Concussing. I mean, if you're getting him in the head. Like... I'm sorry, but I'm of the belief that if you throw a hit that the principal point of contact is the head, whether it's on the boards or open ice it's five in a game. That's what my thing is. And if you elbow a guy, I don't care if he has the puck or not. That's a penalty. If that elbow comes up, I call it every time because it's dangerous. And in the age of concussions, we just, you can't have that. If a clean open ice hit happens and a guy happens to bang his head on the ice, you don't call that. But if a guy slams a guy's head into the ice or into the boards, you have to call that. Like there can be there can't be any room for that sort of thing, especially with the concussions. You know what's funny is we get so passionate about this kind of stuff, we end up spending over twenty minutes talking about officiating just because that's what happens in the playoffs. Our emotions are high, we get frustrated, and this is a topic that tends to come up every year. So really looking forward to when this is a, a topic on, on staff and graph next year at the same time. <laughs> I know, yeah. Let's just mark this day down and uh we will go from there. So before we get out of here, got any fun mailbag questions to get us uh, to get us out? Maybe something interesting that uh, one of the readers or readers, wow, one of the listeners wanted us to talk about. Um, a couple people. Well, so for the most part, the reason we spent most of that time on the officiating is because when I put that tweet out, I counted seventeen questions regarding officiating. So I'm like, okay, well, we got to touch on that, I guess. So that was like a mini mailbag in itself. Yeah, I'm hoping we answered all of your questions there. But one of the really interesting ones that I got the other day, and it wasn't even part of the mailbag, it was just like a tweet. And it was, what is happening with both Tampa Bay and Pittsburgh? Two teams that, especially in Tampa's case, are dominant in the playoffs. And by extension, you could say Calgary after what happened last night. What are teams like the Islanders, the Avalanche, and the Blue Jackets doing to completely stop the skill of those teams. 
because Johnny Gaudreau has been nowhere to be found. The entire Lightning roster has been nowhere to be found. And Sidney Crosby, I believe, doesn't have a single point. Like, what are teams doing there? Have you, like, do you have anything on that? It's funny, with Tampa Bay, I know you talked about Columbus and the neutral zone, but I, I know a lot of people are saying, well, oh, well, Tampa Bay just can't handle the physicality and the, and the playoff oh, grind God. of the Columbus Blue Jackets. And then I look up some metrics, I'm like, okay, well, Tampa Bay was actually top 10 in hits this season, and Columbus was in the bottom 10, and Tampa was actually in, like, what one of the most penalized teams in the regular season, both for and against, whereas Columbus, again, was in the bottom 10 when it came to penalties for and against. So that doesn't really fit the narrative here. Columbus, are, they're, they're not big or bad. I mean, they're, they're more of a speedy, skilled team when you look at their roster. And I, I, that, that's not an argument in my opinion. So it's funny, with Tampa Bay, I don't have a good answer. I, I'd love to, to give you an answer like you gave with the neutral zone, and that's something Columbus is doing really well. I feel like with the Islanders... All season, I haven't really understood their success. I know that we can attribute Barry Trotz coming in and helping their defensive structure, and that helps improve the save percentage from what it was last year. I agree with that. But going from the worst goals against team in the NHL to the best, uh, a 100 goals against swing, that's more than just coaching. That's some weird voodoo save percentage goalie stuff that I can't explain. And I'd love to say that this is all 100% Barry Trotz and it's completely sustainable. But I, ju- I just think there's an element to luck or variance or unsustainable goaltending in this that is going to eventually come back and bite them. But for now, it's crazy and it's fun, and the Islanders fans are, are going nuts in the in the building. It's fun to watch as a hockey fan, but I just think realistically, moving forward, I don't think it's very repeatable. Okay, so with the Islanders, is it whether you the goaltending is a completely different conversation, but... They have made Crosby and Malkin relatively irrelevant through three games. Like, I have heard nary a thing other than Malkin's goal. And the thing with Malkin, and less so with Crosby, is don't wake the bear. Like, just don't poke the bear. It's the same saying with Aginla back in the day. You just let the bear sleep and don't rile it up because then he does things like make you look silly. And Malkin's like the best example of like when he goes into psycho mode, he might be the best player in the world. It's just sometimes he doesn't activate it. We don't get to see it. Exactly. But I think there's definitely something to be said about the Islanders. And I mean, Eberly, for all of the people that wanted to dump on him, he's been absolutely terrific for the Islanders in the playoffs. And I was told he couldn't play playoff hockey. (laughs) I, I think a lot of people were told that. But I think for me... Shutting down Crosby and Malkin and Kessel, just that entire lineup, I mean, that's no easy feat, and it's definitely not an accident. So, with the Islanders, I can understand where you're coming from, but at the same time, they've been getting outshot this series. I feel like that's not something you ideally want to do moving forward if you plan on competing. Yeah, they've been getting outshot, but I think in watching their games, a lot of they're not giving up a whole lot off the rush which is where Pittsburgh is most dangerous, in the same way that Columbus isn't giving up much off the rush, which is where Tampa is most dangerous. They're forcing them to play that cycle game, and Pittsburgh doesn't really want to play that game. Like, Phil Kessel doesn't want to cycle the puck. He wants to come down off the wing and shoot the puck. And Crosby is built to do anything. He's Sidney Crosby. But if the other players that he's playing with can only really play the rush way or can really only thrive and be dangerous off the rush... That poses a relatively large issue. And so I think the Islanders and the Blue Jackets have both done a great job of dealing with Tampa and Pittsburgh off the rush, and that's really limited the scoring chances. So they're getting shots, but, I mean, there's not a whole lot of really dangerous ones that I can remember. And by the opposite is Calgary has no answer for what Colorado's doing right now. They're coming through the neutral zone like a train down the tracks, and particularly Nathan McKinnon. I was going to say, I, mean, I feel like you're just talking about Nathan McKinnon being a god. but Well, even I like Calgary was backing off really, really quickly last night. The, the gap controls, it's almost like, with the exception of Mark Giordano, um, it's almost like Calgary has lost their gap a little bit because they're compensating for the fact that Oh my God! Here comes Nathan McKinnon because you've like McDavid. If if he's even with you, 
you're out of there. But Or here comes Kale McCarr shot out of a cannon at age 20. Oh my god, he's so fun to watch. What a debut that was. Oh my goodness. And I love it on Twitter. People are going, well, if he plays this year, then they're going to have to protect him in the expansion draft. Yeah, I don't think that's going to be a problem, guys. They're going to protect him. I think he's going to be their best defenseman. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, is Calgary, opposite, has no answer for what Colorado's doing. And it's not even that... Colorado's got an answer for what Calgary's doing, which Jared Bednar, I mean, in the series against Nashville a couple years ago and now against Calgary, that team looks insanely prepared. They know what they're doing. They're sticking to their game plan. and They got Mike Smith in game one. Like, that's the reality of it. Mike Smith had a terrific game. I was going to say, usually getting Mike Smith means something else. Yeah, but Mike Smith was terrific in game one. And, and I don't know if you saw the game three, but... Mike Smith was legitimately the only reason that Colorado didn't have like 10 goals because there were chances galore. It was incredible. Like Colorado, whether it was McKinnon or it was Tyson Jost, they were coming through like it was just a turnstile. It was, it's incredible to watch. And it's crazy because I had Calgary in five because I just thought that Colorado was a one-line team that would be pretty easy to beat in the playoffs. As long as you don't let McKinnon destroy you, they're easy to beat. McKinnon's destroying them, and it's it, it's kind of hard to counteract for that. I mean, it's funny. We, we talk about matchups, and we talk about how certain teams aren't built well for the playoffs, and Colorado, I feel like, is a good example of, like, well, they're just a one-line team, but if that one line can completely annihilate you, well, guess what? They're going to have a good chance of winning that series. And I think Colorado's also done a very good job of neutralizing Goudreau, Monaghan, and Lindholm for the most part. And then, I mean, we saw it a little bit last night, Matthew Kachuk sort of getting into that agitator role. Um, But who's he going to go with on Colorado? Like, do you think Nathan McKinnon is going to deal with that? Like, he's just going to go, huh, whatever, and just right down the ice and score. So... Can I ask you one more quick question before we get out of here? Yeah, what's up? What are your thoughts on Carolina? Because that was one of the most dominant playoff performances I've seen in a while against Washington. I think after the first period, Carolina had more goals than Washington did shots. And uh, it was just, they lived in the offense zone. I thought they were going to do that more often in games one and two. I thought this was just such a weird example of like a team who's so good at controlling play at five and five, but doesn't have the finishing talent, doesn't have a great power play. Whereas the other team, Washington, isn't that great at getting into the offensive zone, but when they get there, watch out because Ovechkin, Kuznetsov, Backstrom, good things are going to happen and they're going to score on the power play. So I wasn't sure how the series was going to play out versus like the five on five play versus the special teams and what, and Ovechkin scoring lots of goals on the power play game three was just a complete five on five dominant performance by Carolina. And I couldn't get enough of it. So listen to this. Carolina was up four, nothing with five minutes left to go in the third, the shots, which you would think score effects would have some type of impact at this point. We're 41-10 in favor of Carolina. Washington had seven shots after the first period. (laughs) Washington had one shot in the second period. And two shots in the third period after score effects kicked in. With a team with that talent level, that is unacceptable. I mean, it's completely unacceptable. The fact that Dougie Hamilton is finally playing on the power play and scoring is... I, I don't know if you're shocked. I'm certainly not. I never understood how he didn't get so many minutes. Every team he's gone to, he gets around 20-ish minutes, and I'm like, this guy's one of your best players. Play him more. Like, give him more power play time. Give him more 5-on-5 five five time. Just get this guy on the ice. I think Washington won on their shooting talent in the first two games. Um, that's just my kind of assessment of it. I think Carolina played very, very well, and they were absolutely dominant in game three. Like there was, they ran Washington out of the building. Like it was completely not even close to a game. They were dominant from minute one to minute 60. They remind me so much of the LA Kings, not necessarily that they play the same style of hockey, because I feel like they play a much faster brand of hockey than the LA Kings play. And not as much physical. Yes. But in the way that they just control play and they live in the offensive zone when they're on the ice, they don't have the highest shooting percentage. They don't have the highest quality shooters. Sometimes their power play struggles, but they just own the puck. And if you if you get down against them, 
it's hard trying to get back because you don't have the puck. Here's the thing about, and I hear people complaining, oh, Carolina, their shot share, like, it's crazy good, but they don't have high-quality shots. Um, It is extremely difficult for the other team to score if you always have the puck. <laughs> it's very difficult, unless you are scoring in your own net. So even if Carolina has the puck 62% of the time, or 60% of the time, and they're not getting high-quality shots, that means that the other team only has it 38-40% to 40% of the time, and that's a finite amount of time to do things with. You know, Washington happens to be a team that has players like Alex Ovechkin, who's the game's greatest goal scorer, and Evgeny Kuznetsov. Yep, they're a power play away from tying the game up. Exactly, but the fact that Carolina controls the play is way more conducive to success than trying to depend on a guy who's one-timing it from the top of the circle. Now the question is, can you trust Petr Mrazek versus Brayden Holtby in a seven-game series? I mean, goaltending's voodoo, so it's tough to say, but... I think that Carolina is a star goaltender away from being a legitimate cup contender. Like, I'm talking, I think if they had... Bobrovsky? A Frederick Anderson or a Bobrovsky or a John Gibson, that team is probably, with Tampa, as the favorite to win the Eastern Conference, just because outside of their goaltending, that team really doesn't have a weakness. I was going to say, I'd like to see one more star forward when it comes to impacting play on the power play. I feel like they have a Sebastian Aho. That's awesome. Svechnikov is young, and I feel like he'll get there. He's he'll not be there, there yet. He will be there. I don't know what Martin Nekash is going to be at the NHL level, but I feel like they're just missing that one more star on the power play that, that can really help them swing things. I think it's part of the reason they went hard after William Nylander. I think they realized the fact that they need a bit more skill to help them convert on their chances on the power play, but they're able to dominate play at 5-on-5. Five five. I know people talk about shot quality, but their expected goals are even better than their shot metrics. Like When it comes to where the shots are coming from, they're coming from good locations. Maybe this comes down to whether or not they're generating pre-shot movement and passes in the offensive zone. It's another discussion for another day, but I love this team. I think this series is going seven games, and again, I really hope they address goaltending in the offseason and maybe see if they can land a star forward just because, man, they're so fun to watch, and they play kind of tactically perfect hockey when it comes to breaking the puck out and just owning the puck in the offensive zone. So speaking of Carolina, um, it just hit that, Shvechnikov's in concussion protocol, which, I mean, what happened last night was, one, very unnecessary, and two, uh, terrible. We're at 57 minutes, Rachel, we're at 57 minutes. I feel like this is a discussion for the next podcast. <laughs> no, but um, Br- Brenda Moore was asked if fighting is needed in the game, and his response with a straight face was, not really, probably not. So I'm sure we'll talk about that, and I think the most important thing is here um, that we hope Shvechnikov's okay, because you'd never like to see that. Yeah, uh- Again, another conversation for another day, but the inner caveman in me goes, well, Svechnikov started the fight. If you don't want to get punched, maybe don't drop your gloves. But again, like the fact that we have to talk about guys punching each other on the <laughs> ice in general probably isn't very smart. But I love that you can't cross-check a guy or like you can't hit a guy by a certain way, but bare-knuckle boxing is allowed. Do, let's be real. Does, do a lot of things in sports make sense when you no. think about it? Like, when no. you really think about it, nothing in sports makes any sense. Like, should you really be able to slap shot a puck at a guy's head 100 miles an hour? Like, that doesn't seem safe, but it happens all the time. Sports is a social construct. That sounds like another conversation for next week. We'll see if we can get into that. I'm sure there are going to be some very... Hot takes on both sides, much like uh, anytime you get into a Tom Wilson discussion. Oh, so, God. So we'll see what we can do to, to make that entertaining. Hopefully, Carolina and Washington are still playing some excellent hockey, so we have more to talk about when it comes to the Ovechkin-Svechnikov. Uh, I don't know if you call that a feud, the Russian fire there, but um, playoffs are fun. I'm having so much fun in, in round one of these NHL playoffs. Even though I hate the playoff format, it does make these matchups a bit more interesting in round one. So even though I'd like to see them in... Properly? the conference finals or Stanley cup finals, as opposed to in round one, getting to see Vegas, San Jose, or getting to see Toronto, Boston, or even this Carolina, Washington series, man, it's fun. Oh, it's definitely a lot of fun, but I mean, I would rather see it in the conference final like you. All right, but we got to get out of here. So any, any last words before we take off? No, I guess we'll probably see you at the end of round one. Yep. Sounds good. Probably very tail end of game uh, round one. There might be a few game seven still going on, which which could be a lot of fun to talk about. Oh, hell yeah. There's nothing better than a game seven in hockey. 
it's the best. I mean, you could know absolutely nothing about either team, but just Game 7 of a Stanley Cup playoffs, it's it's the best. Inject it directly into my veins. Straight into my veins. All right, we'll get out of here. Thanks a lot, Rachel, and uh, yeah, we'll talk next week. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.